Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it is time for Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett and thank you to Chris. Today I'll be speaking to Dr. Martin Bush and Dr. Madeleine Martinella, speaking about the Australian Living Peace Museum and the film Against the Odds, the victory against conscription in World War I. Professor Emeritus James Petrus will be analysing the violence, the reasons for the violence in Nicaragua. The deep sea mining project in PNG looks increasingly uncertain. Natalie Lowry will talk on about that. The ninth anniversary of the coup in Honduras with journalist Sandra Cuff, who is based in Honduras. Corruption par excellence in Malaysia. Democracy activist and environmental consultant Lee Tan knows all about what's been going on there. But first, let's hear it for Mr Kevin Healy and no corruption there. A week, Jane Lister, when congratulations to, and I'm sure she'll appreciate it from uh, the week that was, to Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo, Theresa May Not Last, for a highly successful weekend retreat to sort out Brexit policy. Brexit tactic, which worked a treat. Half the cabinet has Brexiters, making us realise the B in Brexit was for Boris, who made the exit, understanding it's a revolving door, and the other side, to which he's staying very, very close, is marked entrance, confirming Boris's Brexit is Boris's Brexit tactic, while her Minister for Brexit Policy Brexited on the unreasonable grounds that he doesn't support the Brexit policy, and that's his Brexit policy, as he stands next to Boris on the entrance side of exit. So, not sure we've seen the last of them, which we can't say for Theresa, whose expertise in political tactics, Machiavellianism, is impeccable, calling an election ages early so she can massively increase her numbers and succeeding in losing most of them, and then holding her weekend retreat to reach Brexit consensus and succeeding in losing the relevant cabinet members. And Boris and Davids, he's the now ex-Brexit secretary waiting outside the revolving door with Boris and David's principled support for the Brexit people voted for is that as part of Europe, Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country gets overrun by Europeans, not desirable Europeans like Boris and David and Nigel Lafarce, but undesirable Europeans flooding across the channel. Although Boris and David and Nigel agree it would serve Europe right if but they could send Theresa across the channel the other way. Well, they know that flooding an an homogenous, classless society like Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country with undesirables can lead to the destruction of customs and cultures and language developed over eons. Of course it does. Look at the impact on the civilizations, the people. We've invaded all over the world. We'll return to that theme, listener, but still in Her Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country. Look, sometimes we can be a little critical of Her Most Gracious Majesty and her family of hangers-on as they keep producing new little hungry mouths for the British taxpayer to feed. Hurtful comments like, sponges, budgers, the, the biggest doll budgers in the world. 
Oh, true, but this week, let's spare a thought, because obviously they need every euro, every penny of that taxpayer's hard-earned. Important news item in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin yesterday that the latest hungry mouth dependent on that hard-earned was about to be christened. Apart from the exciting news that it would be the first time the new kid and his parents and two doll-bludging siblings will be seen together as a family, I'm sure we could hardly wait. Disturbing news. The kid will wear the, quote, same frilly cream gown his siblings wore for their introduction to Jesus, a replica of one born by Her Most Gracious Majesty Queen Victoria, who must have been named after this state, Victoria's daughter in 1841. Oh, I couldn't have been named after, but spare a thought that they can't afford a new gown for the little kid and have to keep recycling. Well, as we know here in True Blue Aussie, it's pretty tough trying to survive on the doll. As a by-the-by, notice one of the royal incubators, married to the princess we all love, failed to appear somewhere and they said she was on, quote, sick leave. Uh, from what? On that, Boris and David and Nigel's concern about loss of culture and language and the name Victoria brings me to a complaint. How do we, the real people of this great country, get conned into allowing the terra nullius non-people to carry on as if they exist? This NADOC week nonsense, showing they can't even count, because here in Victoria it's two weeks, NADOC weeks, complaining about the usual litany of so-called injustices, and for a long time I fell for it, until that respected thinker, the Lord Rupert of Wapping, usual suspect colonist, bolt through the head, exposed the lie. Not one child, not one, was ever stolen from her or his parents. Why, like U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, big supremo Donald Trump or the poor, and our very own minister for concentration camps, raise a wire and sink the boats and, keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, we go out of our way to keep families together. The non-people bludge on massive public welfare, the usual suspect columnist alerts us, every cent wasted, bludging just like Her Most Gracious Majesty and her gang of ne'er-do-wells. Well, Bulker the Head didn't say that bit. And as for the claims, claims that incarceration rates are outrageously disproportionate, if you do the crime, you do the time. And since they came here, post-1788, when Trouble was, he was terra nullius, since they invaded us, we have introduced them to the overwhelming benefits of British capitalist law, which they so abused by making a beeline for the nearest prison. And as for these claims in the past, week or so that 100% of northern Trouble was a youth inmates being, being terra nullius non-people reflects a failure by we the real people what nonsense it simply proves that 100% of terra nullius non-people youth have no respect for the law that is there to protect them despite all that we do for them and that 100% of decent law abiding white youth in northern terra northern Trouble was have that respect not one criminal white youth in the whole territory. And I have to say, I'm sorry, but I have to say it, shame on this station for running programs all week attempting to make out that all these terra nullius non-people doing the time for heinous crimes, like not having the wherewithal to pay fines, are real human beings. Shame. On those who don't shame us, it takes some sort of ability to spend 20 years in a safe seat 
well a safe seat when he first got it and never looked like getting off the back bench but that's the commendable achievement of Socialist Party permanent backbencher Michael Dunby Talent, the member for Melbourne Ports and Zion who has announced his retirement but the bit I found interesting was Tasmanian backbencher Eric Betts on the bosses who did make the front bench under Tiny a bit more for the bosses as Minister for a bit more for the bosses praising the socialist working class hero and declaring he was sorry he was retiring. I've known Michael since we were involved in student politics, albeit on different sides. And that's the interesting bit. Different sides? Where would they have disagreed? Oh yeah, maybe they could have had an in-depth discussion about whether the dear baby Jesus was the Messiah or whether they were. Another retiring working-class hero, Jenny Make Them Poor, the pin-up hero of single mums, being praised for her compassion, as we can be sure single mums will be forming a guard of honour over her compassionate decision to throw them and their kids onto the dole. And in fairness, she didn't really make them poor. She just made them a hell of a lot poorer. And she was an avid supporter of the Northern Trublawazi intervention, sending trained killers in to ensure the Terranulius 100% criminal non-people stayed a hell of a lot poorer. And that will be her week that was legacy. Sadly, last week we were forced to expose David and Jenny's dynamic supremo and would-be big supremo little Billy Shorten ambition for trying to stir up class warfare, class struggle, when we know, and more importantly the caring business class knows, there is no such thing. And this week, necessary stop steps to counter this socialist avalanche from the Trublawazi Mines and Metals Profits Association, advising the government to appoint a new batch of fair work, no longer work choices, just looks like it, commissioners, to restore the balance between the caring business class and out-of-control evil unions, the balance the government has attempted to display through its past 14 appointments to the bench, all from the caring employer's side. Further proof there's no such thing as class struggle, and hopefully a counter to that comrade shortened ambition done by talent and making them poor nonsense. One of those great caring corporations aware class warfare is a chimera, that highly respected financial advisor AMP on the customers, is threatening financial planners contracted to it with losing their licenses, presumably because they were giving bad advice, something that would shock AMP on to its roots. Or perhaps they were wasting AMP on time by doing something as disobedient as actually providing a service the poacher in charge of. Finally, as Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, which is featuring heavily today, home country kept pointing the finger at evil Russia over so-called nerve agent attacks. Evil Russia thought it could ride out the storm until late yesterday, when our very own minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bashup, the workers, held a press conference threatening evil Russia with all sorts of crippling punishments if it doesn't do the decent thing and plead guilty, whether it is guilty or not. Won't that have them shaking in their boots in Red Square? After they whip out their atlases. What does it start with again, Ivan? Good afternoon. And good afternoon to Mr. Kevin Healy. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilda. 
did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah. That stands for reduce, reuse, recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. Today I'm speaking with two people involved in the digital story and film Against the Odds, the Victory Over Conscription in World War One, which drew on material from the May 2017 conference Democratic Opposition to War, the 1916-1917 Anti-Conscription Campaign, Impacts and Legacies. It is a production of the Australian Living Peace Museum, with support from the Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign. The first is Dr Martin Bush, the curator of the Australian Living Peace Museum. Martin, unlike most museums, there is no street address. This is an online museum. Is this a new concept or are there others in the world? The Australian Living Peace Museum is an online museum dedicated to Australia's heritage of peace and non-violence. There are a number of peace museums around the world and there are also some of them that are online museums only. This is the Australian Living Peace Museum is certainly the first such organisation in Australia to um, have a look at this history of peace and non-violence. How long has it been up? The Peace Museum has been around for about three years now online. It's still a fairly small space, but we're continuing to build the stories and um, items that we have on the museum. And where is your information coming from? How do you find all these stories? The collections that we draw on are largely collections that exist in existing repositories like the museums and libraries and art galleries of Australia. We're in a wonderful time when increasingly these organisations are making their collections available online so that we're able to um, access the online versions. So we want to tell the stories of peace and non-violence in Australia. So we also draw on um, a range of expertise of academics and other historians and activists who are able to contribute the information and the stories that go along with these with these items. You're the curator. How much of your time is devoted to this? It varies a little bit. When we're building a new uh, exhibit or story, then um, obviously many hours need to go into writing and preparing the material for that. Um, at the moment, we're working on a project for the Culture Victoria website on the history of the anti-conscription campaigns during World War I um, in Brunswick and Coburg, and that's quite a substantial undertaking. I'm trying to put together the finishing touches on some of the stories there at the moment, and, and that's a pretty big job. Well, it went for quite a number of years, didn't it, the campaign? Uh, yes. Yeah certainly did those, um, the anti-conscription referendums. Of course, there were two referendums during World War I um, in 1916 and 1917, but the campaign against conscription had gone back um, as early as um, 1914, 1915, so it was really for most of the war there were people um, working against conscription. And then the group in Brunswick and Coburg who 
who brought it all back to life a hundred years later. They started very early too. That campaign went for maybe three, four years and still going. Yeah, the, the um, Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Coalition is one of is uh, our partner on this Culture Victoria project. You know, yeah, they've done an absolutely fantastic job in bringing that campaign back to life, remembering it. It was the um, wonderful conference that they organised that... Um, you know, we drew on a lot of people from that conference for um, the information for this project. And uh, then, of course, there was also the serenading Adela performance at Petridge Prison earlier this year, remembering um, Adela Pankhurst, who was um, in prison there during the anti-conscription campaign. Were you involved at all in the Brunswick-Coburg group? Um, I wasn't directly involved in that, no, but um, I've certainly, um, as I said, had the opportunity to um, to access the um, expertise of, of the people who did speak at that conference. Can you explain a little bit more about the process for integrating the, the story and film into the museum? We organise our material in the Living Peace Museum under um, what we call galleries, which are, but, uh, are basically themes. And so some of our themes are looking at specific resistance to wars um, in Australia's history, but then also looking at the technology of militarism and how Australia's involved in that and the kinds of campaigns against that. And another theme is, you know, sort of more personal reflections and memories of peace activists of, uh, of their work. There's a few broad themes, um, and then within that, of course, there's particular stories, particular exhibitions within that theme, and uh, then each exhibit, of course, has um, the text and images associated with it. So preparing material for that really depends a little bit on whether um, we've given a contribution externally, in which case it's a matter of obviously editing the contribution to um, fit into one of the galleries and making sure that all of the associated information, objects and images are there and correct. Alternatively, uh, we develop our own material, in in which case, um, obviously, there's a lot of research required to to work out sort of what we're going to put in, what we're going to include in that particular exhibit. Can I ask you to explain a little bit more about we? Who are the people who are putting it all together and... And how does the organisation work? The Living Peace Museum is a cooperative, so there's a number of people on the committee who are very involved. Um, and then, of course, we've got a wider base of, of members and supporters who um, contribute uh, as they can. We are currently run out of the Borderlands Cooperative in Hawthorne. They're very supportive of our work as well in, in terms of um, assisting with administrative and um, other matters. You'll be at the launch on the 22nd of July of the, the story and the film. You'll be speaking. Yeah, very much. I'll be there presenting the digital exhibition part of the project for Culture Victoria. Of course, uh, filmmaker Maddie Martiniello will be there to show the film that's been developed for that project. How do people access the museum? Online is www.livingpeacemuseum.org.au And unfortunately, the, the, the era there 
we're living in this plenty of material and there has been in recent years for a peace. Yes, it's an ongoing challenge. We are wanting to recognise the efforts and the successes of people who have been working for peace and non-violence and um, not just give in to the um, terrible negative stories of wars um, every day, but um, certainly there has been a, a long history of peace activism in Australia, and so there's plenty of material there to, to present. And what's important too is the Indigenous responses to colonisation. Absolutely. We love to um, have more material on decolonisation, um, uh, but also of um, Indigenous resistance and, and, and peacemaking. That's um, something that we have certainly identified as an area that we need future growth in, in the museum. And um, But you know, obviously that involves um, accessing the right kind of expertise. So um, that's hopefully a project for the near future. So you're looking for people to contribute to your museum? We are always looking for people to um, contribute. That can be contributing stories, it can be contributing ideas um, and of course we're a volunteer organisation so people that are able to um, volunteer any time to help us is also something that's gratefully appreciated. So the way you said before, either, either your webpage or Facebook for people who want to contact you? Yes, we have a Facebook page as well. You can look up the Living Peace Museum on Facebook and you can get in contact with us that way um, or you can contact us through Borderlands Cooperative um, or there's the contact details on the website. Okay, thanks Martin. Okay, thanks very much. I was speaking with the curator of the Australian Living Peace Museum, Dr Martin Bush. Dr Madeleine Martianella is the director of the film Against the Odds, the Victory Over Conscription in World War I. And Medi is a Melbourne-based filmmaker. I asked her first about her background, which led to her interest in the subject as a film. I am a documentary filmmaker and I have recently graduated from the Masters of Film and TV at the Victorian College of the Arts and during my time there I was really interested in making films about place. I made one about the mission to seafarers, the old building at the end of Flinders Street in Docklands that is the home to the charity that looks after seafarers while they're docked at Melbourne's port. And I made a film about the um, old site of the Newmarket sail yards down near Kensington. So I've always been interested in history and place and where they meet. And what did you know about the anti-conscription campaign during World War One? So when I took on this project, I actually knew nothing about the anti-conscription campaigns during World War One. As a young woman in my late 20s who spent most of my adult life in the inner north, I particularly had no idea that there was a real community from the Brunswick and Coburg area that contributed to it so greatly. And who approached you to take it on? Martin approached me actually 
received a reference from one of my lecturers at the university who um, was going to do the project and she couldn't do it and then she suggested me because she knew I was interested in history and place. A quick learning curve to get yourself up to speed with what the story was. Yeah, so I did lots and lots of research and there was just so much information to fit into the documentary. It's only 11 minutes long and so we were really trying to give people an overview of the events and also the sort of um, the values behind the anti-conscription campaign and you know there was there's a lot of different groups that were involved in this campaign it, it was a lot of groups with a lot of different motivations who united for the campaign so we really needed to show the diversity of the campaigners that's been very difficult in 11 minutes because that campaign went on for years i know it was and obviously there's lots that we had to omit, but I think that the core principles and the core players are all explored in the documentary and their relationship to the Brunswick-Coburg area. Maybe in the future there might be a longer one. Well, that would be amazing. I really think that it could absolutely, there's enough, um, there's such a wealth of history and a lot of characters as well who were involved and I was even thinking it would make a really beautiful television drama. <laughs> a little bit ambitious. I'm not sure if it's something I would take on but I think that it would be a really beautiful historical series. And during this you've got to know many of the people who were involved in the, the campaign through 2014 still going? Yeah, so the committee from the Australian Living Peace Museum are all very dedicated to this and they've teamed up with the Brunswick and Coburg. Ugh, I can never say... Anti-conscription commemoration campaign. It's a mouthful. Yes. yes, it is a mouthful. Since before the centenary have been working towards, you know, putting on different events and working towards this online exhibition of which the film is just one part but they were very much motivated by the fact that during the centenary much of the um, you know public discourse around it was about remembering the Anzacs and remembering sort of the victories and sacrifices of the war itself and there hadn't been any focus on you know the opposition to the war and the peace activists so I think that's why you know, this has been a really important project for them. And you've got to know some of the members of the campaign, Brunswick Coburg. Yeah, I have. I mean, we've worked quite closely together. Fran Newell and Michael Hamill Green have been very much involved in the iterations of the film project as it progressed, and um, Martin Bush as well. And oh, I'm going to leave someone out here. Marilyn from the Brunswick historical society who's extremely knowledgeable about everything from the area had lots of good suggestions as well you'll have maybe five ten minutes to talk at the launch yes i'm going to be giving an introduction to the film okay. at the launch 
Okay. Are you inviting people to come along or is it sort of booked out yet? You know, I'm not actually sure about that. Maybe ask Martin because Fran's been organising it and I know she's sending out specific invitations with RSVP, but I'm not sure what the capacity of the space is and whether, you know, the public can just come along if they RSVP. Maybe that's probably a good thing to clarify because it would be really nice if people are able to come to be able to put a link to the event or something. I'm not sure. Good. Okay, well, I'll see you there. Okay, great. And that was Dr. Madeline Martiniella and before her, Dr. Martin Bush. And if you get on to borderlands.org.au, I'm pretty sure you'll be able to find a link to the, the film launch. It's in Brunswick on the 22nd of July between 2 and 4 p.m. Hi, I'm Rod Quantock and you're listening to Fill in the Dots, you know who you're listening to Why do I have to tell you who you're listening to? You know who you're listening to You're listening to, yes, Fill in the 3CR Community Radio, you got it right You've won a giraffe uh, We're at 8.55am, we're on digital radio And streaming at 3cr.org.au 3CR has been making trouble since 1976 and occasionally I've been part of the trouble that's been made. It's a vital part of our uh, media landscape and I'd encourage you to get a hacksaw, an oxyacetylene torch and go up to the Dandenongs and, and bring down all those broadcast towers that aren't 3CR's towers and let's make 3CR the only source of information to an information-starved, dumbed-down Australian community. Written, authorised and spoken by... By Neil Mitchell. On the program last week, Professor Emeritus Jones Petrus spoke about the recent elections in Colombia. To finish his interview, this segment is regarding Nicaragua. Another country I'd like you to talk about, James, is Nicaragua. There's talk of an, another dirty war by the US. This is uh, one of those colour revolutions in part. Uh, let's say this, the Ortegas have long ago abandoned uh, left-wing politics. They have industrial parks, uh, they have been involved with big business, uh, landowners, and they formed a coalition with them uh, over the years. Uh, you might call it a right-center-left coalition. Now, the Ortegas did increase social benefits. They did increase welfare programs. They did put money into education and health. But their political content domestically was quite uh, orthodox economics. However, the uh, opposition business elite uh, were opposed to them and were constantly trying to undermine them, but were ineffectual because of the uh, programs that the uh, Ortega. What gave question for Washington was their foreign policy. Ortega was supporting Cuba, supported Venezuela, opposed the U.S. intervention in Honduras. Uh, so they had a, a dual policy, a left-wing foreign policy and a, a liberal domestic policy. The liberal domestic policy uh, had created some animosities among People, especially when they uh, uh, raised the uh, tax on Social Security. 
and uh, this became a popular issue for opposition. However, while the uh, opposition was basically popular in the beginning, it was it, it was taken over by the right wing groups and the students who were opposed to the uh, Ortega government. And once the uh, the conflict started, the repression uh, escalated. And the uh, conflict from both sides became quite violent. So the nature of the conflict is the U.S. exploited some grievances, domestic grievances, and the uh, original opposition from popular classes has taken on a new character. And uh, I think the orientation is to overthrow the government and bring in a strict neoliberal pro-U.S. government which will uh, oppose Venezuela, oppose Cuba, and line up with the rest of the right-wing gangs that have taken power in other countries. Has the U.S. already put sanctions on certain parts of Nicaragua? Not that I know of, but they, they certainly have provided support for the opposition, both diplomatic, economic, and political, mainly through the NGOs and the media. So is there likely to be people leaving the country and traveling north? There's a lot of poor people in Central America, in all the countries. Uh, the greatest number of refugees is in the areas that the U.S. was most involved in, and that is in Honduras, in, uh, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, where the U.S. decimated the uh, resistance and insurgent forces and uh, these people fled the country then. They didn't receive any uh, significant changes when the so-called ex-guerrillas took, took power, especially in El Salvador. So you have a tremendous immigration, uh, including in Mexico, where the U.S. Uh, agreement, uh, North American Free Trade Agreement, really decimated the uh, small farmer sectors, and uh, they also became part of the um, immigration flow north. So you have all of Central America either affected by capitalist investors and takeovers of parts of the Mexican sector of the agricultural economy. You have Central America devastated by the U.S. wars of the uh, 70s, 80s, and the uh, post-period, post uh radical period. So you have, in a sense, uh, the immigration issue, which is boiling now in the U.S. as a product of wars engendered by U.S. aggression, economic and military and political. And this is an issue that's not debated in the U.S. They talk about immigration. They talk about the uh, separation of families, the uh, jailing of little children, including infants. Uh, those are, are terrible issues, and, and they should be powerful condemnation. But you have to go deeper and say where there's U.S. wars like there was and U.S. exploitation, that's where the, the, the soul of immigration comes from. And if the countries and, and progressives were interested, they would end U.S. war, U.S. exploitation, get to the roots and begin a, a kind of martial plan for, for the countries that were de devastated by U.S. intervention. That's the answer. 
as far as immigration goes. The same thing happened in Libya, Iraq, Syria. That's where all the refugees come from. How do you believe it will work out the problem at the moment with Trump sending whole families back now, holus bolus? That's been going on with all the presidents, Clinton, Bush, Obama. Let's not forget two million people were expelled under Obama. What, what has happened with Trump is his public relations is, is more crude and vulgar, and he's expelling more people with greater speed. So he's actually exacerbating the established policies of the U.S. and taking on some aspects that are extremely unpopular, like the young people that came into the United States and never lived with their families and never came from Latin America. They spent their whole life in the U.S. And that section of the population has drawn a lot of support across the board, as well as the children being jailed in um, military installations. Could you talk for a couple of minutes, James, about North Korea and the United States? What was achieved at that meeting and what will be achieved? Well, it was a public relations effort on both sides. The uh, North Koreans got recognition and a certain legitimacy and a good press and the uh, distortions about what's going on in North Korea and their uh, defense policies. And uh, Trump got a uh, idea that he's a peace candidate, but it's, it's very unstable. Uh, one day Trump says North Korea is interested in denuclearizing and becoming a, a peace partner. The next day he says that they still represent a nuclear threat and there'll be no sanctions lifted until they surrender. So I think ultimately it's uh, it's a public relations stunt, and uh, it has mutual temporary benefits, especially the North Koreans hope that finally China will cease partnering with the U.S. and uh, imposing these sanctions. I think the North Koreans look at China as their main trading partner, and they think uh, that playing with the U.S. or being in, in, in some way in negotiations with the U.S. will encourage China to stop punishing North Korea. Trump is now uh, headed into a very extreme right-wing position, and I don't think he's in any uh, mood going to proceed in any serious way to uh, negotiate any kind of uh, meaningful uh, peace agreement. I will add on this, Democrats and the liberals are to the right of Trump. They didn't even want the negotiations. They didn't even want the diplomatic overtures. They've been attacking Trump from the extreme right. If Trump stays in his position for his full term, where can you see the U.S. going? I think we're in a very dangerous time because things are heating up, especially the trade wars with China, trade wars with Europe, trade wars with Mexico and Canada. I think there's a lot of issues that are raising that never existed before and which have a lot of important consequences. The business area, the business sector here is up in arms over the tariffs because they will undermine the uh, production chains that link 
U.S. production uh, with uh, overseas countries, and there is also 500 biggest U.S. corporations that are producing for the Chinese market. And uh, this so-called uh, deficit doesn't take account of all the money that the U.S. companies are earning from producing inside of China. Uh, One-third of the Chinese exports to the U.S. come from U.S. corporations. So the U.S. corporations are benefiting both from producing for the Chinese market and exporting to the Chinese market. And if you add them both together, the differences, the trade, so-called trade differences, or balance of payments are not as significant as the uh, Trump administration makes them out. So is Trump not the clever person? It's the people behind him, people like... Oh, there's very little cleverness. Uh, the understanding in in the U.S. Economy, economics people is that this uh, tariffs is going to disrupt world trade. It will undermine the uh, degree of financial flows. It will undermine U.S. consumption. It will raise inflation. Uh, there is a, a virtual uh, state of war going on in the corporate boardrooms about where Trump wants to go. Mind you, a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, when Trump uh, passed the uh, huge tax cut for the corporations, they were ecstatic and they were very pro-Trump. Now that he's going with the tariff and, uh, and with the restrictions on trade and the uh, economic war, uh, they are very unhappy with them. But we haven't seen any major political uprising. The business uh, people hope they can lobby, influence, etc., but so far they haven't been very successful. But surely it's the people behind Trump rather than Trump himself, or don't you believe that? Yes, I think a lot of his, uh, his policies is by these uh, right-wing extremists, Pompano uh, and others, uh, Pompeo, and uh, his immigration policy is also directed by uh, Zionist extremists who are opposed to uh, any kind of uh, understanding with uh, the uh, forces on the liberal left. So I think that uh, Trump is both a captive, but then he also shoots his mouth off and says things each day that are contradictory, and, and uh, some people say he has a bipolar psychological problem, which uh, I'm more and more I'm be- beginning to see. Just one example. Uh, one day he says uh, North Korea is a U.S. ally for peace. The next day he says North Korea is a military threat to U.S. security. And that's Professor Emeritus James Petrus speaking to me. A little while ago in New York, Bingingham is in New York. I'm not quite sure where it is in New York, but it definitely is there. Time is 4.42. You are listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377 or donate online at www.3cr.org.au 
or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mind. It is hopefully becoming clearer that the world's first experimental deep sea mine, the Solaris One project in PNG, is sinking. A number of environment groups worldwide have been working with the local communities in PNG to stop this mining. And one is the Deep Sea Mining Campaign. And I'm speaking with Natalie Lowry, who's their communications coordinator. Natalie, the latest challenge to this project occurred last month in the days leading up to and the AGM of Nautilus Minerals in Vancouver. What occurred was that Anglo-American pulled out of the project. Was that expected? We have been dialoguing with Anglo-America since um, late January last year. We wrote them a letter and a couple of weeks later I happened to be in London so they met with me. What was interesting about Anglo-America was their engagement was quite different to some other big mining companies. So they were quite open-door policy. Um, And right off the bat, we were talking to a senior executive. And from that time onwards, every month, we would sort of send them updates of what was going on in the Pacific and um, Nautilus' financial situation, the resistance against the SOIL-1 project. Um, And we were talking directly to the CEO and one of the senior executives throughout the whole of last year. And, you know, we were pretty persistent, but in in a polite manner, I guess. So we had written to them because their AGM was in May, so we were kind of writing to them in um, March, April, going, you know, your AGM's coming up, what's the decision you're going to make? And they said, we're going to get back to you before the AGM. And um, at the end of April, just prior to to me going to Papua New Guinea, actually, um, one of the senior executives wrote to me and simply just said, Nat, we're exiting from Nautilus. That was it, one line. (laughs) So we were surprised it happened as quickly. I think it's in part because... It was a small, you know, research and R&D, research and development experiment. They even used that word on their portfolio. And even when we did first contact them, they were sort of perplexed at who was even running that portfolio. So (laughs) I don't think it was a major thing for them. And I think they just decided to take in all our our concerns and decided, well, this is just something we don't need and, and kind of got rid of it. So they just gave the shares back to Nautilus. They were only about 4%, so it wasn't like a massive... They weren't a massive shareholder, but 4% can make a big dent in a company like Nautilus who are, you know, in a myriad of problems, particularly financially. So yeah, that's probably where it is with Anglo. So, um, yes, they divested. Um, it was a, a great win for us. We know that the resistance in P&G with the communities on the ground was a key part to that as well. Have you had that approach also to other investors, to softly, softly? Well, usually there is some sort of dialogue with a company before you start kind of, you know, if you want them to divest, you you initially would write a letter to see what their response is. And because they were keen to meet, we, we chose that angle. But every company is different. And often with corporations, when I've engaged with, say, BHP Billiton, they have a layer of PR spin doctors. You can't get to the executives directly. So it just was interesting that Anglo had a different approach and more of an open-door policy. So each company is quite different, but we also have now a finance strategy. So we are looking at other investors, including banks. So we're starting to write to banks that we see as potential investors into Nautilus Minerals. So we're continuing the strategy around 
making sure no more people invest in Nautilus. And um, the two key investors in Nautilus are very hard for us to target because one is a Russian billionaire and the other one is an Iranian like billionaire as well. So they're not they're not as easy for us to target as the sort of Western corporations. So that's why we went to Anglo-American and um, we're looking at who the other potential investors would be because Nautilus needs quite a lot more money before they can start operating. How much money are, are they looking for and, and if you, what do you believe they've got at the moment? They need um, another 243 US million to complete the project, which, uh, you know, in large-scale companies is probably not a lot of money, but for them it is. So at the moment they get these sort of bridging loans with little scraps of money here and there. Um, so they still have a way to go. And they, they, these also, these loans become debt. So we think financially they're really not in a good place at all. And that's why we, you know, are, are continuing to be more aggressively working on the campaign. We had a colleague in Vancouver who just recently went into the AGM where, you know, they dismissed Anglo-America's divestment and shareholders buy and sell shares all the time. But, you know, 4% is still significant, really. And, uh, you know, so they're still trying to undermine it. And they have to do that as a PR to get more investors. So we're quite aware of that. Also, the shipping vessel, the company around that is, uh, there's a default on that as well. So there's uncertainty about the shipping vessel. There's uncertainty about them raising enough of the funds. Um, a question was asked on the issue of insurance. They said they don't have any insurance secured yet, which we find quite unusual considering these, you know, large-scale machines they're using and the expense around that. So these are sort of, I guess, some of the things that we're going to kind of start keep investigating search around Nautilus. Are the dredging machines already there? No. So they were uh, tested in just out of Port Moresby earlier this year, late, late last year and earlier this year, in not the conditions of, you know, 1,500 metres deep in the ocean at all. It was... <laughs> in a shallow pond uh, in the heat of Port Moresby. <laughs> so, you know, even those tests seem kind of ridiculous. But our understanding is they've, they went back to China and, you know, I guess they're going to be bringing them back for further testing. That's kind of our understanding of where the testing is at the moment. What are those machines usually used for? Because this is not a purpose built for this project. No. No, that's, we always say this is an experiment. So you have three machines. You have one which goes down and kind of sort of excavates the ground, I guess, you know, sort of almost like, like it's not a dredging machine, but it's doing that sort of thing, scraping it. And one then that kind of pulls all that material in, and then there's one which like a riser, so it sucks it up to the ship. So that's the three key machines that will be operated from the ship robotically. But the ship's got a problem as well. It's only 75 percent complete and also there's uh you know there's some default on the shipbuilder there's some default there on the money so there's some funding around that so it's a default on payments so there's some there needs to be some resolution around that and yeah actually i, I just looking at the notes that our colleagues sent so they're in process of transferring the equipment to china to be installed on the vessel so they're still in a real process around the vessel that's some other equipment that they need so they have, you know, we're initially saying they'll be starting operations in the first quarter of next year. Um, we know that that's definitely not going to be the case. So I think now they're sort of saying second and third quarter. 
So, you know, for the communities on the ground, the Alliance of Solar Warriors that now represent well, across five different provinces across the Bismarck Sea, they're, they are, um, you know, still working very hard around their campaign. And, of course, we have... There's a legal case there that the that representatives from the Sawara Warriors are plaintiffs on. And interestingly, in the meeting, they were trying to make out that the legal case had been dismissed, which is actually false information. So we are following that up. It's interesting that uh, they said that, but obviously they wanted to say that for their shareholders. But the case is it hasn't been dismissed at all. <laughs> I think it's 17th of July it, go, it goes ahead. It had been um, deferred. The, the judge had deferred it until the 17th of July for the hearing. So, you know, it, has, it definitely is going ahead. <laughs> so for them to say that is actually misinformation for their shareholders. So we're looking at what, how we can follow that up. What's the basis of the legal action? So the legal action sits under um, Section 51 of the Constitution, which is access to information. So we, you know, within the legal case, there's, I think, 20 or more documents that were made public that should have been made public from oceanographic data sets to the environmental management plan. So the idea of the case is for, if, if the case is won, that those documents would be released, that the public then get access to these documents that they should have had access to. Just remind people, Natalie, why there is such opposition to this project. Sure. So first of all, this is the world's first deep sea mining project to be given an operating license. Nowhere in the world has deep sea mining ever taken place. The major concern is there's not enough science to really understand what those impacts are. But we know that land-based mining has failed miserably, even with supposedly stringent regulations and monitoring. But when there's no regulatory framework around deep sea mining, how do we monitor it? Particularly in a country like PNG where you have one of the worst mining disasters in the world, the the Octeti mine that basically destroyed the Fly River. So to put a mine, a a new frontier extractive industry, deep sea mining, in the Bismarck Sea, which is also where 20% of tuna stocks come from, (laughs) It's, it's very important. It's also where... A lot of people living in the coastal areas of the Bismarck Sea are subsistence. They live off the ocean. This is their life and their livelihoods. And they don't want it to happen. They've seen what's happened on land. They certainly don't want to see it happen in the ocean. So firstly, there's no um, precautionary principle being upheld. There's a lack of science. And secondly, there hasn't been the free prior informed consent. The consent of the local communities has not been obtained for this to go ahead. So those are the two key things. But also, if the Solar One project goes ahead, it will open up the industry across the South Pacific, where currently there's millions of square kilometres under exploration leasehold. Would it be true to say that the company thought that it would be a bit of a pushover to put it in this area, that the landowners wouldn't um, be up in arms, acquiesce to it and not fight it? Look, I think initially they looked at doing it in another part of the Bismarck Sea um, near Kaka and Bagabaga Island. In 2009, those communities rose up and said, we don't want it. So then they moved to East New Britain where the community said, we don't want it. So then they went to a very isolated area 
the west coast of New Ireland province. Now, they did that strategically. So it's taken a lot longer for the communities there to mobilise, but now they're mobilised very much so. So that was strategic for them, was to fight. Like, I think initially they were like, great, PNG government, love us, we can come in. They don't even think about the local communities. There's no benefits, there's no flow on economic benefits because everything happens out in the ocean. Yeah, they've built a bridge and, and some toilets in New Island province. But, you know, I've been there and the locals are like, well, this isn't what we needed. <laughs> this isn't a priority to have a fancy bridge. <laughs> I think they haven't understood that they, did, they probably didn't believe that the resistance would grow like it has. And it's grown across provinces. And that's a movement. <laughs> Once you have a movement, that's when more voices and more people will come on board. Well, it's actually the opposite to a flow-on, isn't it? Because they're, they're going to lose their, their livelihoods in many cases. That's right. This is their, absolutely their livelihoods. We're working with some local communities. We've identified where Sawala 1 is, the project is, which is only about 25 kilometres from the west coast of New Island province and 40 or so kilometres from Duke York Islands. That that area is still traditional fishing grounds for them. It is deeper water, but they still go out to these places. But, you know, they are very concerned about what will be the flow-on impacts. And, you know, we know in our... We're doing our research and understanding the little research that's been done is that when you're scraping that seabed bottom, there's going to be plumage and a cloud of heavy metals and other toxicities which can very so easily move up the food chain. The ocean moves. <laughs> so these are the things that haven't been considered and the science hasn't been done around. And then if you actually look at the, where they're mining, the hydrothermal vents, these are, these are areas that we have barely touched in research. We know maybe 5% of the species and the ecosystems that live around these very unique environments. How would you judge the role so far of the PNG government and maybe the local governments in the area? Um, I think our understanding is, as it happens in PNG, this Solwara 1 project got signed off pretty much by, behind closed doors where even other politicians weren't really aware to us suddenly in Parliament and it happened. So one of our campaign team members is actually Sir Arnold Ahmed, who was the former Chief Justice of Papua New Guinea. He's adamantly opposed to this, along with some other politicians in the country. But the PNG government uh, probably saw dollars not that actually we don't even think it's particularly economically beneficial for the country as a whole, compared to, say, land-based mining. So uh, we would say that's probably the key reason why. There's not much thought. It's just all about money. And there's definitely no thought from the PNG government of the local communities or any proper consultation and seeking consent from them. And maybe they didn't counter that or didn't take into account the, the number of NGOs around the world who um, are supporting the, the local people in PNG, including Australia. Yeah, I think also they didn't understand how that local communities in PNG will actually come together and oppose. Mm. So, you know, we're here trying to get their voices out, but they're the ones very much driving it on the ground. Absolutely, they're the ones driving it on the ground. And they've got the, the major churches there behind them? Yes, so PNG, the churches are very important. So the Cardinal of Papua New Guinea, Cardinal John Rebat, is has come out deeply opposed and is calling for a ban on seabed mining. And this is backed by the Lutherans, by the PNG Council of Churches, um, and it's also reached out beyond PNG into the Pacific with the churches as well. 
so recently they had the big Catholic Bishops Oceania conference in Port Moresby and one of the Alliance of Sawara Warriors from New Island Province, John Lamori, who actually heads up Caritas there, was invited to speak on this issue. So they take it very seriously and they're very willing to work closely with those local communities in supporting them in their voice. So, yeah, despite even the church coming out, the government isn't listening. So I guess, you know, that's why also there's a legal case there um, with the hope that we can get more information or the information that should be made public. And from there, there may be opportunities to actually stop the the operation from ever going ahead. So that's the next stage, to wait for that decision on the 17th of July? Well, no, that's just been the, the court, or it's a start happening, the yep. court case starts happening. And how long is so that likely to go be a for? Decision. It's PNG, there's no answer to that one. <laughs> These things can get dragged out for a long time. And the Mineral Resource Authority lawyer, you know, they're pretty hard-lined, they, they don't want this case to succeed, so there'll be... It's PNG, it doesn't work like Australia. There will be lots of different ways that I'm sure it will be held up. So it's hard for us to know how long the case will go for. Yes, so I guess our lawyers in PNG will just keep us updated. But the people are determined that this won't go ahead? People are very determined. They're very determined. And, you know, right now in Halla province, around the Allengy project, community are so tired of not being treated right, they've actually started to burn equipment and block roads. So, you know, in PNG, we've seen it with Bougainville. Sadly, it could definitely happen with the LNG project. But even across the Bismarck Sea, those communities are angry and they don't want it to go ahead because they know that it will destroy their livelihoods and and doing that their lives. Okay, what are you asking people to do? At this stage, there's no particular action that we have. We actually will... Over the over July, there will be a letter to the ISA that we'll be calling people to sign, but that hasn't gone public yet. <laughs> um, so I guess you could check that out on our website, deepseamininoutofourdepths.org, and that's all one word, deepseamininoutofourdepths.org, um, and there'll be updates on that international letter, which has been signed by some prominent people, and, and including scientists. Um, and that's to target the International Seabed Authority, pretty much to call for a moratorium on seabed mining and any giving out of any licences. And as you said, people in other Pacific nations will be closely watching this. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, Nautiluses in Tonga, there's interest in Fiji, there's interest in the Cook Islands. So, yeah, right across the Pacific, uh, people are definitely watching this and also... also building their own awareness in their communities about seabed mining. Thanks, Natalie. No worries. Thank you. It's Natalie Lowry from the Deep Sea Mining Campaign, anti-mining campaign. Just a message for those who might like to go and see the launch of the film against the odds what Martin and Maddie were talking about before. That um, address is peace at borderlands.org.au I believe there might be still places remaining so it's peace at borderlands.org.au I'm Jane Clifton author, musician, actor marriage celebrant author of The Address Book 
I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band Stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. In the early hours of the 28th of June 2009, a military coup ousted the Honduran democratically elected president, Manuel Zelaya, flying him into exile in Costa Rica. The coup against Zelaya was widely condemned by governments across Latin America, the EU and the Organization of American States and other regional blocs. In contrast, the then Secretary of State for the US, Hillary Clinton, admitted later in her autobiography that she used her power to stir a crisis into a favourable outcome for the US. Sandra Cuff is a freelance journalist based in Honduras, and I spoke with her just days after the ninth anniversary of the coup. Sandra, remind us why in 2009 the US deemed it necessary to actively support a coup in Honduras? Well, the president at the time in power was Manuel Zelaya. Over the course of his presidency, because he was trying to sort of avoid being co-opted by the sort of richest, biggest landowner families, which controlled the main currents within his party, his cabinet was fairly eclectic and he started moving towards and, you know, sort of got his power eventually more from social movements, from popular demands. So he became, he sort of shifted towards the center-left. He passed a lot of pro-social movement, pro-poor policies, raised the minimum wage. He was going to do um, a national consultation or referendum on whether people wanted to maybe have a constitutional assembly. So, you know, the, the power was sort of leaning a little bit more towards the population and the people. There was a lot of discontent, obviously, within the main elite within Honduras. And so when there were rumblings of a coup and finally there was a coup, uh, the U.S. quickly recognized the illegitimate government that took power when Manuel Zelaya was deposed and illegally you know, flown by the military out of the country. And so since then, it isn't that there weren't you know, major problems before, conflicts over lands, over natural resources, but all of that has really increased the militarization of the country, has really increased in the nine years since the coup, and there's once again, you know, our U.S. control over um, the government, government policy, etc. Was it a very violent coup? It happened on June 28, 2009. People didn't know what to expect. You know, people sort of woke up. A lot of communications, radio, etc., were cut. The president was captured it, like arrested, not arrested, but taken from his home. He was flown out of the country. That flight did make a stop for 20 minutes or so, I think it was, at a major U.S. Honduran base. So Honduras is home to the only sort of southern command, you know, mission that's outside of the U.S. or Guantanamo. So it's geopolitically or, you know, strategically for the military, Honduras has always been a very important place in the region. It's where there's a big base and there's smaller forward operating bases. So he, the flight stopped there, he was flown to Costa Rica, and there's sort of a lot of confusion because, of course, you know, Honduras has experienced coups in the past, as have most have, most of Latin America, um, and people didn't know what to expect because 
you know, during the 20th century, coups were often extremely violent and bloody. In this case, you know, people called Honduras sort of a, a laboratory. You know, it was an experiment for the 21st century style of coup. So it was a coup d'etat, but Congress took over power. The president of Congress became president, so it wasn't direct military control. And so the, you know, Honduran elite and many in the U.S., you know, argued that this was just a constitutional transfer of power. It wasn't a coup, etc. It was violent in a way because there were crackdowns on dissent, on protests. Many journalists and protesters were killed in the months following the coup. But it, it wasn't... It wasn't the same model as most of Latin America had experienced in the 20th century. So it was more sort of subtle form of a coup d'etat to try to, you know, because the extremely bloody military takeover style of coup obviously is, there's less acceptance of that in the world now. So Honduras is considered sort of a lab for this new kind of coup. And, you know, Paraguay, Brazil, et cetera, have since experienced these sort of more subtle forms of coup d'etats. Salaya did actually get back into the country. How did that happen? Well, there were months and months of protests, and he initially was going to come back in roughly a week after the coup. So in 2009, on July 5th, um, he was in a plane. He was accompanied by some you know, fairly prominent Latin American leaders, somebody from the OAS, etc. And they were flying into the capital city, Tegucigalpa, and the government simply shut down the airport. The runways were covered by soldiers. Um, there was a massive, massive protest outside the airport. That was the first time that somebody from security forces opened fire on a protest against the coup. So a soldier opened fire, uh, killing 19-year-old E.C. Sobed. So anyway, so I did not get back in because, you know, the threat was literally they were going to shoot the plane down. So he got back in later that year was in an embassy for several months and eventually, you know, came back into political life in the country later. And he's currently the coordinator of the major opposition party, Libre, that grew out of the resistance to the coup. Who of the people who have been targeted in those ensuing years? Is it the, the left? Is it journalists? Is it trade unionists? Is it peasant groups? Who have suffered the most? Who have suffered the most? Sort of all of the above. I mean, after the coup in 2009... Very quickly, violence spiked in Honduras, political violence, but also just general violence. So in, you know, 2010, 11, 12, uh, for a while, Honduras was the country with the highest, you know, per capita homicide rate in the world outside of a war zone, and it's still way up there. But definitely there are certain groups who were particularly targeted and still are, and those include, um, yes, organized campesino groups, journalists, lawyers, actually, um, indigenous activists, you know, land activists, human rights defenders, etc. Are there many political prisoners there at the moment? Yes, there are. So, you know, after eight years of, you know, sort of all this violence, but also a re-energized opposition that sprung about after the coup and, you know, a lot of youth involvement, really strong student movements over the past few years. So in 2017, last year... In the general elections in November, there was major, uh, basically, there was a stolen election. So the president at the time, Juan Orlando Hernandez, was in power because there had been sort of a technical coup in the Supreme Court, even though the Constitution 
bans re-election, so there's a strict one-term limit on the presidency. The Supreme Court did a really irregular ruling to sort of circumvent that. So Hernandez was running for re-election, and he was up against an opposition alliance that, you know, sort of gathered multiple, multiple sectors across society. When results were first announced, the opposition alliance was up five points. It was supposedly irreversible. Then the computer system went offline. When it came back on, all of a sudden, you know, that irreversible trend <laughs> disappeared, and Hernandez was reelected. And, you know, there's no legitimacy of the government, even the Organization of American States, um, which usually would only come out against left-wing governments, stated that there, there could be no certainty about who won. So there's a general recognition that the election was stolen. So in the wake of that election, as soon as the results started to turn and it became clear that the election was being stolen, there were massive protests around the country, highly blockades, sometimes lasting for days, and, you know, just protests, neighborhood, bonfires, roadblocks, huge marches. The state response was much more violent than it was in 2009 after the coup. So um, security forces opened fire dozens of times on protests around the country. At the very least, 35 people were killed. And in response to those killings, you know, in different places, Sometimes there was, you know, retaliation if police killed somebody or state forces killed somebody. The local police station, for example, might be burnt down, etc. And so after sort of that initial, I mean, these protests went on for uh, more than two months. So after that sort of wave of protests and massive repression and killings, there were more than 20 people were arrested, and their charges were all in connection to property damage, either to state or private property, sort of in the context of these of these protests. And, you know, in many of their cases, or all of their cases, who knows, you know, many people were proven to not even be at the protest, et cetera, et cetera, and they were just kind of swept up because the government was making such a, you know, these prominent statements that they were going to crack down on, on anyone who was involved. So... Most of those people are now at an, on bail. They're still facing charges, in some cases fairly serious charges. Um, but there are five people who still remain in jail and are political prisoners in three different jails around the country. And one of those five, Edwin Espinal, is a longtime activist. He was super active after the coup in social movements and like neighborhood protests since. And he's you know been arrested numbers and numbers of times tortured by police. So he was definitely, some of the people may have just been swept up, but he was definitely targeted and he's been denied bail and is facing serious charges. And I'd imagine the conditions in jail aren't too good. No, um, I mean, Honduras has for years and years and years been called out for its prison conditions. I mean, in the past, decade of 20 years. There have been a few massive jail fires. Literally hundreds of people have died. The conditions are terrible. The government has, over the past several years, sort of supposedly revamped the prison system, including the sort of body that manages it, which is largely run by the military. Um, there's also two new sort of maximum security prisons, sort of modeled on U.S. Uh, maximum security prisons, those are run directly by uh, military officials. And, you know, there's little access to medical attention. There's been tuberculosis outbreaks. 
there's a severe lack of water, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, um, all five are being held in extremely poor conditions. The fact that there's a U.S. bases, large U.S. base in Honduras, the Southern Command, does that influence the, the training of the security forces? Are they trained through those bases? Um, not necessarily through those bases, but so historically, yes. So that base was a pre-existing Honduran base, and it was expanded. So in the 80s, it became a joint base. Um, actually, it may have been before, but it was expanded in the very early 80s, and there were other U.S. bases around the country that operated as regional um, sort of training centers, so for Honduran, Guatemalan, Salvadoran state forces, um, in some cases also for the Nicaraguan Contras, who, you know, were U.S. financed and fought the Sandinistas after the Nicaraguan Revolution. So historically, yes, and then currently, they're definitely sort of still, it's the epicenter of regional training and U.S. Central American operations. The trainings don't necessarily happen on that significant sort of southern command base. But, for example, you know, when Marines come through, they'll come through the base, and then they'll spread out through Central America to do trainings. So, yeah, there's also been a whole sort of slew of new special security forces, elite units in Honduras um, that have sprung up in the years since the coup, and particularly recently. Some of those are U.S. trained. So, for example, the Tigres Force, which is, a special force um, nominally under police command in Honduras. They were trained by the U.S. Special Forces, Army Special Forces, and Colombian sort of special police forces, supposedly for drug war operations, for counter-narcotics operations, organized crime, etc. But the Tigres have been involved in a number of other operations. So, for example, some of the arrests, of the more than 20 political prisoners um, and others who were arrested but then freed because there's no evidence against them. Tidus participated in some of those sort of arrest sweeps. Um, they've also more recently participated in crackdowns on communities who are fighting hydroelectric dams in northwest Honduras. So there's a lot of U.S. training which, according to the U.S. or Honduran government, might be for one specific purpose, but these forces are being used in crackdowns against social movements and protesters. You mentioned the dam building in northwest Honduras, and that brings us to the death of Berta a couple of years ago and continuing repression of the people and degradation of their land. Right. So Berta Cáceres uh, was the co-founder of the Civic Council of Popular and Indigenous Organizations in Honduras, COPIN, in western Honduras. And she was a hugely important, widely known social movement leader in Honduras, feminist, supportive LGBT rights, um, anti-imperialist, spoke out against, you know, U.S. occupation by U.S. forces. At the time when she was killed in 2016, COPIN, so the organization, based communities in Rio Blanco, were very actively fighting a planned hydroelectric dam in the area. Um, there had been a lot of violence. You know, state security forces had cracked down on local protest. One local, Tomas Garcia, had been shot and killed by a soldier. His son was wounded. Um, so this is a really heated battle in terms of natural resources. And, and like there, there are many 
that were at the time and still are very active um, and conflictive around the country in terms of hydroelectric dams and also mining projects, etc. So Bigberto was, you know, a leader of Copine and there was a lot of attention and so she was murdered in her home in March 2016 um, and since then due to sort of massive pressure within Honduras and around the world there have been a number of arrests so there have been nine men arrested and among them there are active and former military officials including people who had experience in special forces as well as people tied to the hydroelectric dam company, DESA, including the company's president, um, who was arrested just earlier this year. And so in the vast majority of cases of murders of social movement activists, journalists, um, campesinos, and everybody, there's just complete impunity. And in fact, in you know roughly 90% of homicides, there's just absolutely no prosecution ever. But because of the massive pressure around the world and all the attention on this case. So there has been, you know, nine arrests and prosecutors are moving forward and the court trial for the eight of the nine, the first eight of the nine men arrested for her murder um, is scheduled for this September. So that'll be moving forward fairly soon. Yet the dam and building or the proposed dam building continues. In that specific case, the dam you know, construction has started, but the dam was not built in Rio Blanco. Um, so not all of the licenses have been cancelled, but that project has mm, probably been successfully stopped. All the international financing, everyone pulled out. But around the country, there are other hydroelectric dams moving forward, um, and there are opposition movements, local resistance camps, and conflicts that are just as intense as, the, um, as they have been in Rio Blanco. So, you know, there are people facing charges, people have been detained, um, people have been killed in relation to other conflicts to do with other hydroelectric dams around the country. Are there such things as land rights for the local people? Well, Honduras is one of the countries with the most unequal distribution of land in Latin America, which says a lot because Latin America is probably the continent with the most unequal distribution of land. So certainly land rights have been major battles you know, pretty much forever in Honduras. And, you know, there are some very strong land rights movements, some in the Iguan Valley, where more than 100 people were killed in the span of um, a decade, most of them after the coup. Um, Also, indigenous land rights in Garifuna territory, as well as Lenca territory, where Copina is based, are very strong. But, um, yeah, they're up against a lot of power and impunity. So, But definitely those land rights battles move forward, and especially uh, in terms of indigenous territorial struggles, you know, the fight for land rights goes hand in hand with the fight for control over natural resources, so, you know, against hydroelectric dams on the rivers, etc. And the mining, what are they looking for when they, might, when they explore for minerals, is it? It's largely been gold and silver, so there are a few operating mines in Honduras. One of them in the west is currently expanding to the point that, you know, there's been, as elsewhere with dams there, there's been a lot of community resistance to the mine and now to its expansion, which is now sort of trying to take over an historic community cemetery. 
for multiple communities. So literally, bodies have been exhumed and transferred against the will of a lot of local people. But yeah, there's because of you know the prices of gold and other precious metals fluctuate so much. So it sort of comes in waves in terms of you know in Honduras and anywhere else in terms of how much exploration and pressure there is to move forward with um, new mining projects. But yeah, I mean, there's also nickel, you know, there's there's all kinds of mines, but the sort of most powerful and contentious mining projects in the past have been the silver and gold projects. I think most people are aware of the problems of gold mining with the, the pollution of the rivers and the air pollution. Has that happened in Honduras as well? Yes, that has. So at the gold mine I was referring to in western Honduras, pollution has been a major issue. You know, there's been mass fish die-offs in the local rivers. And beyond pollution, one of the other major issues is just how much water metals mining consumes. So, you know, rivers, streams, local water sources have been drying up, and that's really been the case in the Syria Valley, which is about an hour and a half north of the capital city. Gold Core, a major gold company based in Canada, had an operating mine there for years. And, you know, there have been massive health problems. People have elevated levels of all kinds of heavy metals in their blood. And that's due to because of the the use of a cyanide solution to break down, to extract the gold from the other crushed rock. You know, at the same time, all of these other metals get liberated into the local environment. They've had, you know, more than a dozen streams, creeks, rivers, water sources dry up. Um, so even when these projects are, like in that case, um, the mine has since shut down, but the problems that they've caused, you know, continue for generations to come. So even where mines have been shut down, their communities are still experiencing these, these problems. Has there been any impact of the, the ban in El Salvador on mining for the people fighting against these mines in Honduras? Taking up that, the ban last year on mining, the legislative ban on on mining in El Salvador was, you know, a huge victory, and everyone in Central America was, you know, sort of looking at that at that victory. Um, I mean, it in part was actually influenced by Honduras because in the Syria Valley, where there there were all these problems um, for years, communities from El Salvador and Guatemala would come to the Syria Valley. You know, communities where mines were proposed in their countries would come to the Syria Valley and talk with locals and learn about, you know, the water shortages and the pollution and the health problems and sort of take that back and that would feed into their, sort of inform their their resistance. The probably major issue is that in Honduras, this was the case before, but particularly since the coup and then now with the stolen election, there's no chance of that ban being passed by Congress. You know, whereas in El Salvador... People were able to pressure and finally get, you know, the major right-wing party on board with the ban in Honduras. The sort of makeup of power and the structure of the states and how things are working, it's not at the same point. So there's currently no necessarily, there's really no chance of that happening in Honduras at the moment. All these problems in Honduras was lack of human rights for many, many people and repression. Does that mean that a lot of oh, many people have gone north and travelled to the, the US and are they some of the people who are now being separated from their children and being forced back? Yeah, there's certainly 
I mean, even since the coup, you know, there's been a spike in um, northbound migration. And so that's a mix of things, you know, the dysfunction of the state, the impunity, the lack of security, you know, state forces working with organized crimes and some crime in some case with gangs, et cetera. So people who are experiencing violence that, you know, at first glance may not necessarily be political have been heading northward, like to the U.S. for for years to escape that. But yeah, there's also a lot of political violence, for example, in the massive migrant caravan earlier this year um, that, you know, very publicly headed through Mexico up towards the border. For example, there were, you know, transgender women from Honduras who, I didn't mention that before, and you asked about specific groups facing extreme violence, but um, definitely transgender women um, and also, you know, lesbian and gay Hondurans experience an inordinate amount of violence. So a lot of people have also been leaving. There's also, you know, the direct political repression in response to the protests and social movements. So the immigration or, like, the exodus of Hondurans is a mix of all of these different things. I mean, and there's also, in terms of specifically people targeted because of their involvement in different movements or in protests, not everybody heads to the U.S. I mean, there's a lot of internal displacement in Honduras, both from just generalized violence but also political violence. There are a lot of people in hiding within the country, and there are a lot of people who have fled to neighboring countries in order to stay alive, so to Costa Rica, to El Salvador, to Mexico, etc. Finally, Sandra, I'm just wondering how difficult it is for you to carry out your work as a a journalist in a, a country where lots of things are are going wrong and have been going wrong for quite a long time. People willing to talk to you, to tell you their stories, and, and just wondering how you do carry out your work. Yeah, despite everything, people, especially people who are involved in, um, you know, in different social movements, at different times, people for different reasons, mostly security reasons, you know, will sometimes decline interviews or, you know, request to not be named. But in general, people are actually pretty open. I mean, especially when there's these sort of massive events, you know, when the uh, movement sprang up against the election fraud. Despite risks, people are very committed to their beliefs, to what they're doing. And so um, generally people are willing to speak to journalists about what's going on. Okay, well, thank you very much. Great, thank you. And that was Sandra Cuff, who's a freelance journalist based in Honduras, Central America. The Malaysian elections were held in May with the then Prime Minister Najib Razak in power since 2009, facing a fight for his political survival. And as some predicted, he suffered a stunning loss to the former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed. But as time went on, it was clear that his political survival was not his only concern. Last week, the 65-year-old former 1MDB chairman was detained and expected to face more than 10 counts of criminal breach of trust in the scandal that has sparked probes in seven countries and the closure of a Singapore bank. Yesterday, I spoke once again with pro-democracy activist and environmental consultant Lee Tan and asked her first about Najib Razak's background in politics. 
he was the prime minister between for Malaysia between 2009 and May 9 of this year. He is also the son of a former prime minister. I think he's the second prime minister of Malaysia since independence. They come from a town by the name of Pekan in the state of Pahang, where the Linus refinery plant is located. In a way, he was also responsible for the approval and uh, licensing of uh, the controversial Linus Red Earth refinery plant in his state. But he goes back a long way. Yeah, he came from the politically active family of the major Malay party that's been very influential and in power in Malaysia from the day of independence in 1957 until May 9, 2018, in the last election. So what we're going to talk about is corruption, but you just remind us that corruption has been part of Malaysian politics for a long, long time. Yes, the politics of what they call patronage and rent-seeking dynamics been very powerful is embedded in the feudal system of the people in Malaysia and bribery and corruption is kind of almost the order of the day even before the independence, it's always been like that. If you want to get contract with the government, you kind of need to somehow, you know, pay your way or somehow suck your way into the system and be part of the, the ruling elites and so on and so forth, close to them anyway. And that can mean a lot of things. What we're talking about also is the 1MDB. What's the origins of that? Okay. The 1MDB is the brainchild, I say, or maybe the baby of uh, the former Prime Minister Najib Razak. He became the Prime Minister in November 2009, and he used the government's fund to buy over a petroleum trust fund and rename it 1MDB, which means One Malaysian Development Corporation, a board or something like that. Uh, it's meant to be a, uh, like a, a national sovereign fund where petroleum revenue and all the other revenue, you know, paid to the state, a portion of it is invested through that fund to make it work as in like an endowment fund or something to help the country's development in the future. But it became almost an, a bottomless pit for the prime minister and his gang of thieves to actually pilfered and steal to the point where I think by around 2014 that fund was in serious deficit to the tune of something like 12 billions. Who was auditing the fund? Who was auditing? So most of the major accounting company, I think Arthur Anderson at one point was the accounting firm. Arthur Anderson was giving a fairly true picture of the situation. Their service was terminated. When was that? must be around 2013 or 14 or something like that. And then I think they got Goldman Sachs involved. They were in investment going through major banking sector. M Bank in Malaysia was the major bank that where all these illegal transactions happened. And for listeners in Australia, ANZAC Australia actually owned 25% of M Bank. 
And according to an SBS article, bank staff, well, who didn't want the identity the identity to be known, say that the board of ANZ knew exactly what was happening. Yeah, and you know the banks say that they haven't done anything wrong. It's all done by M Bank, but when in fact there's not enough safeguard within the bank, uh, or that because they were getting so much in kickback, it was a lucrative type of dealing, even though it's corrupt. That the bank would turn a blind eye, you know, against these kind of illegal activities. Yeah, many banks. I mean, the ten countries were implicated through the complex web of、uh, money laundering activities and asset purchase. And Australia is also not spare from all of that money laundering activities. Who blew the whistle? Uh, okay, there was a guy by the name of、uh, Justro, who's a Swiss guy who used to work in one of the financial institution. He blew the whistle, and then they tried to arrest him. That was in Malaysia. He ran to he escaped to Thailand, and then got arrested in Thailand. And it took. Quite a long time before he was able to be extradited back to Switzerland, and there was fear that his life would, was put in danger while he was in jail in Thailand. The information got leaked out to an online kind of news service called Sarawak Report. It's actually hosted by Claire Rucastle Brown, sister-in-law of one of. Britain's former minister. She grew up in Sarawak, and she loves the tropical rainforest just as much as I do, and the people in in Sarawak. And she set up Sarawak Report because she was desperately trying to protect what's left, you know, of the forest and the strong indigenous culture in Sarawak. She is a、um, an investigative journalist, and she's very. Brave, actually, to report the truth. In some ways, she's been protected by British law, which allows certain freedom of、um, uh, reporting and, and、uh, freedom of speech. Unlike in Malaysia, where the media is so controlled that nobody dares to report anything that's controversial, especially when it involves the prime minister himself. So from there, it went. I mean, I must say that they were. Senior officer, one of them, I think he must he must be from the、um, Malaysian Anti-Corruption Commission. He felt threatened in Malaysia, so he basically ran to the U.S. to seek asylum, and there he to review some of the problems. And then the Department of Justice, that was during the Obama administration, started to look at that because they've just started the money laundering and、uh, cryptocurrency unit or something. So they started to look in this, this case, and they were appalled at how much money was、uh, being stolen from Malaysia. The Department of Justice estimated something like 4.5 to 6 billion U.S. Were stolen from this 1MDB fund, and then it went through different channels all throughout the world. They've been trying to recover some of the assets through its asset recovery unit. It's quite incredible to see where the money ended up. Ended up in Hollywood, 
Leonardo DiCaprio has to hand back some of the gifts that he received for uh, being an actor in the film The Wolf of Wall Street. That film was funded through money stolen from 1MDB as well. And then in Australia, we have Miranda Kerr, <laughs> who also got gifts from uh, the guy, the um, Jolo, who is the mastermind behind many of these illegal transactions. Jolo was educated in Columbia University, and so he got to learn a lot of the tricks, um, not very ethical one, of course, in the financial system, in the New York Stock Exchange and all the other stuff. Uh, the Wall Street people, basically. Yeah, he's wanted now and nobody knows where he is. And it actually goes to show, you know, how the capitalist system has no safeguard at all to protect citizens of Malaysia, the public of Malaysia, from a leader abusing its power, trashing the environment, you know, as in the Linus case and uh, the logging and all the other cases, and yeah, stealing money from the people so blatantly. Such an intricate system, how they did this, and there must have been a, a lot of people who knew a little bit. They probably didn't know the whole system, but so many along the chains knew what they were doing. Yes. Absolutely. Not only that um, people knew, people died because of it. At least two or three people on the 1MDB case, at least one, uh, two or three of them uh, I can name, uh, Hussein Najadi, who founded the M-Bank in Malaysia. He knew about it. He reported it to the Bank Negara, which is the like the Reserve Bank of Malaysia. He was shot in broad daylight. And his son, who is now campaigning for justice for his father's death, is very adamant that it's linked to the 1MDB corruption, or at least corruption at the highest level of uh, under the Najib prime ministership. And then there's another person who died, Kevin Morias. Kevin was the chief public prosecutor. He was one day away from serving a charge sheet against the prime minister to, uh, to try and arrest him. Um, he was kidnapped, and then his body was found in a drum and cemented. It was really cruel, and he was tortured as well before he was strangled to death. And then there was another case of a Mongolian model that was not to do with one MDB, but his corruption case or linked to the prime minister himself. It's to do with the French Scopin submarine, the same company that the Liberal Party in Australia, the Turnbull government, has signed the five billion submarine project um, with. At that time, they were selling two submarines to Malaysia at an inflated price. Uh, and in exchange, uh, Najib, at that time he was the defense minister, was paid a very healthy, well, very, what do you call that? A very fat kickback. And then there was this woman, Atantuya uh, Sharibu, a Mongolian translator Kamodo. People believe that she was the one of Najib's lover. She was trying to demand her commission. And she demanded 500,000 US from one of uh, Najib's aides. Then she got kidnapped at uh, the aide's front door. She was killed by one of Najib's bodyguard, and then uh, her body was blew into pieces by military-grade explosive. And 
you know, everyone knows that this kind of explosive is not easily available. Uh, even by, you know, to a professional assassinator, it's got to be um, somebody within the defense department which authorizes use. Those cases are still ongoing. Now, the twist of the story is that the killer, one of the killer of Asantuya, has ended up in the Sydney Villawood Detention Center. Some of us are actually trying to get the Australian government to extradite him back to Malaysia for fairer trial where he's um he's he's actually being charged and um has been um sentenced to death and we're hoping that the new government will actually retrial because he hasn't got a motive to kill basically he killed on order from somebody higher up has anyone else been charged with her murder yeah there, there was another guy who was still in malaysia also linked to the bodyguard kind of uh, circle of Najib. I think he too was sentenced to death, but he didn't leave the country. There's strong belief that the case will be reopened, uh, and the president of Mongolia has definitely requested for the new government in Malaysia to open, reopen the case and to basically call witnesses which they hadn't called before. And that should shed new lights into the case. And just justice for her family. Absolutely. I mean, she was left two young children. People believe that she was pregnant. And that's why they blew her body into pieces so that they couldn't actually find any evidence of that. And the baby was believed to have been? That of Najib, the former Prime Minister, Najib Razak. Well, to get back to him and the corruption charge, what we were talking about a moment ago, when did the finger point to him? It was when the Department of Justice in the USA started its inv- investigation. It actually went short of naming Najib Raza, but they call him the Malaysian official number one, which is quite clear. I mean, I, I'm sure they didn't want to make it a secret, actually. He's been heavily implicated through the investigation in the USA. You know, although in Malaysia the media were a bit, you know, the mainstream media continued to, at the, until the election, continue to protect Najib by denying any links. But the online media were, you know, getting more brave by basically printing news around it. It's one of the, he didn't try and shut them down. And he did try by imposing new act or new legislation, like the fake news, I mean, the core of that fake news, although they were truth and was uh, kind of um, provable. Yeah, so he did introduce the legislation to try and stifle dissent, but uh, it didn't work in the end. What about cases in other countries that are pending? Yeah, since the election, the Singaporean government started to investigate more thoroughly before they did investigate and they sacked some of the senior bank employees who are believed to be you know, involved in facilitating some of these money laundering activities. Uh, in Switzerland also, they are investigating in greater detail now. The British government has promised that they will do the investigation as well. Yes, and Australia's remain very quiet on this, even though you know, Australia should be one of the countries investigating as well. 
This is Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR and you are listening to environmental consultant and pro-democracy activist Lee Tan. Were you surprised when virtually the day after the election that his house was raided and he was... Not at all. I think it's all planned. It wasn't the day after, it was a few days later, I think. But the day after the election, as soon as the opposition was confirmed to have won the election, they put a travel ban on Najib and his uh, wife, Rosma, who is also another very controversial figure. Yeah, they took action very quickly to make sure they did not flee the country. Talk about Rosma a bit. She was very public once upon a time, and everybody in Malaysia believed that she rules the country rather than Najib Razak, and that Najib Razak was quite afraid of his wife. And she would be on national television, you know, in headline news until the 1MDB scandal became public. She has a flair for fashion and very expensive bags and shoes. I mean, yeah, we remember Imelda Marcos and her 3,000 pairs of shoes. Uh, Rosmar has her very expensive Birkin and Holmes handbags. These handbags worth like a lot of money. I don't know what's so special. They all look ugly. But to her, you know, it's her collection. It's her trademark. Not just bags, though. Not, not just bag. Every hat do she did. Apparently, it costs something like 15,000 Malaysian ringgit, which is something like 5,000. That's a lot of money for a hair do, basically. Um, she does Botox and all. She, yeah, she, she went for Botox and that sort of thing. And yeah, she's just got this very, I don't know what to say, you know, very colorful and materialistic woman who also believe in witchcraft. She called um, the traditional Malay witch doctor or shaman, whatever you want to call them. They call Bomo in Malaysia, and they can cast spell on people Well, because they believe in that. So, yeah, even when some listeners might remember that Malaysia's actually lost a plane at the MH370 or something in the Indian Ocean, yeah, what she did was she paid for the witch doctor to tell people what had happened to the plane instead of going through the proper channel and doing the scientific investigation and so on and so forth. Did her behaviour reflect badly on her husband at the time? The people, what did they think about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they saw him as a very incompetent but very shrewd operator. In some way, I think he also hide behind Rosma by not taking responsibility for his wrongdoing. I would say that Rosma, the wife, or once she was referred as Flom, the first lady of Malaysia, F-L-O-M. She's now the ex-Flom. I say that because she's so, she's got such a high public profile, Najib kind of hide behind her skirt, if you want to put it that way, but they're both really as corrupt. Tell us about the, the money that was in his account, and he said it was from the Saudi Prince. royal family. Yes, and that was interesting. When the uh, 1MDB scandal first went public, Najib immediately said that it was a donation from a Saudi prince. So then the quest went to try and find out who 
was this Saudi prince. They found some connection with a Saudi company, but that company in itself is kind of quite has done quite a lot of illegal activities. And there was a banker, there was a Saudi banker who's now in jail. But there's no prince. There was no prince at all. And uh, I think the transaction was traced back to one MDB account to quite convoluted web of transaction around the world. This is the big one, isn't it? But I imagine there's other corruption activities going on at the same time. Yeah, definitely. Well, it's a common knowledge in Malaysia. Unless you want to, if you really want to do business in Malaysia, you need to bribe. There will be many smaller corruption matters and also it's not just Najib. The chief minister of Sarawak has been, has long been suspected, well not suspected, but uh, long been linked with a lot of corrupt deals in land grabbing from the indigenous community for illegally logging rainforests without following processes set you know, through the, the country's own forestry policy. And also, apart from Najib, there are many other senior officer and minister who's been involved or embroiled in one scandal after another. And what role did Najib's son play? There was a stepson, Riza, who until recently was based in the U.S., he was the one who took the money from 1MDB to fund the film through, I think it's called Red Granite, a production company called Red Granite. Yeah, so they all in the take of the looted money, basically. The new government has now to deal with the ongoing corruption charges, but the, the present Prime Minister needs to look at his background too, doesn't he? Yes, this is, we're talking about Dr. Mahathir, who was once considered the, uh, well, not quite dictator, but at least authoritarian prime minister of Malaysia. He was quite a force to be reckoned with, and he's been in power for a long time before his retirement. Yes, he was a controversial figure, and he, he would not be clean in so far as corruption is concerned, but he was able to hide his track a lot better. He did come back to politics promising to undo the, his own past mistakes. He admitted to the weaken the judiciary system and the various state apparatus to the point where there's no longer any checks and balances, which has led to the current problems in Malaysia. So for that, I think many Malaysians kind of are quite willing to forgive him. Some of us are a lot more cautious and uh, would like to see more happening before we actually think that he, his comeback is actually to try and, uh, what was the word, redeem his uh, past scene. Yeah, I think he's more linked with cronyism, of setting up, government-linked companies where he gets a percentage, you know, as commission, but it's all kind of appearing to be legitimate business dealing kind of thing. But he's also re- resulted in the, in the government having to bail out failed companies. He's more linked to that kind of uh, economic problems. If what you're saying is checks and balances are needed, who's going to bring them in? The current government, they promise 
to actually make the judiciary system independent from the executive. And there must be pressure coming from overseas as well. Uh, yes. I think Malaysia's corruption index was falling rapidly, of course. Business confidence is almost non-existence uh, under the former government. And I think there's been an economic stalemate in Malaysia, apart from liners, which is controversial. And, you know, Malaysia is going to end up paying more to deal with the toxic legacy. I think the business community could see that they, they're not going anywhere, they're not getting any investment, they're not making money because of corruption. There's a lot of behind-the-scene push by supporting pro-democracy movement of civil society and, and all of that. And, and that's how I think the last election was won by the opposition. It was mainly because there was enough Malaysian wanting change, including people in the business community. That very kind of cutting-edge social movement was funded as a result. And that social movement's not going to let things go by the wayside. Well, we hope so anyway. I mean, there were there are some good member of parliaments being elected, and some of them came from the NGO sector. And these are the people who's been known to have a very strong track record. So hopefully they will continue to push within the corridor of power from now on. And definitely in the case of the Linus Rare Earth Plant, today, you know, I was reading this news that the government has, has put in the two staunchest anti-Linus MPs to lead the review panel. I think that's a very good sign. Whether or not it's going to amount to real action later or the closure of the plant remain to be seen, but at least, you know, they are reviewing it and that's a good step in the right direction. Finally, Lee, would it now be safer to people to criticise the government? I'm thinking about the National Security Act, the dearth of human rights that's been in Malaysia for many years. This new government also promised to rescind controversial acts uh, and legislation. I have read in the news that the Attorney General is looking at a kind of a bundle rescinding of some of these acts, but at the moment, for the time being, the limelight's cast on the 1MDB scandal investigation and the arrest of Najib Razak. And Parliament hasn't actually sat yet since the election. They will be sitting the week after, so, or next week actually. So it'll be interesting to see what issues get raised in Parliament. I know the Linus Review Committee will be one of them. Uh, it'll be great to see uh, legislation being proposed to get rid of uh, the repressive laws in the country. Well, this is the, the victory that many, many people in Malaysia have worked very hard for, including yourself. Yes, indeed. I mean, we didn't think we had much hope, but that was our last kind of ditch effort. And it was pretty amazing that, you know, the election result turned out so positive for once. <laughs> I mean, it has taken 61 years in Malaysia for change. Yeah, so that's kind of 
gives us hope, but many of us are not letting down our guard yet. It might slip back, or you know, another factor we fear is the Islamization of the、uh, ruler community. Because of corruption, people may turn towards a much more liberal, open society with accountability. But people can also turn easily to religion when they cannot deal with the challenge of. A much more complex system. They will turn to religion because that's where they feel they find some comfort. So that part of it is quite worrying. And the Islamic Party did win quite a significant proportion of the votes. So that's something that we need to watch as well. Nevertheless, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> and that was activist Lee Tan speaking about corruption in Malaysia. And that's all from me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at four. Done by law. We'll be here in about one minute time. Bye for now.